2: To the Crux of the Story, I'm Mike Fernandez and Gary Schaeffer and I are looking forward to our discussion today with our first repeat guest to the Crux of the Story podcast, the Dean of the College of Communication at Boston University and a celebrated science reporter and editor, Mariette DiCristina. So Gary, you will get to talk to the boss. How do you feel about that?
1: (laughs) Well, Mike, I, I just want to say that this isn't the first time I've talked to a dean you know, back when I was in college, I got called into the dean's office
0: <laughs> several times,
1: but for other other reasons than this. No, I'm really Marriott is terrific and I am really looking forward to the conversation. She's really has some smart ideas about the future of communications education.
2: Yeah. So I'm looking forward to that as well. But before we get to Marriott, let's chat about some items in the news. So CNN's top rated host, Chris mm-hmm. Cuomo, gets fired mm-hmm. on Saturday mm-hmm. from CNN amid a continuing investigation into his efforts to help his brother while his brother was governor of New York, Andrew Cuomo, and while former Governor Cuomo was staving off sexual harassment accusations. The anchor himself was suspended on Tuesday after testimony and text messages released by the New York Attorney General's Office revealing a more intimate and engaged role in his brother's political affairs than what had been previously known. And if that were not enough, on Wednesday, the very next day, a prominent employment lawyer informed CNN of a client with an allegation of sexual misconduct against Chris Cuomo from his days back at ABC News. So Chris Cuomo was suspended indefinitely by the network on November 30th and then ultimately on Saturday, December fourth, was fired. A CNN spokesperson said in a statement on Saturday night, based on the report we received regarding Chris's conduct with his brother's defense, we had cause to terminate. When new allegations came to us this week, we took them seriously and saw no reason to delay taking immediate action. Now, until last month, Chris Cuomo, enjoyed the support of CNN's president, Jeff Zucker, and he faced no discipline for his behind the scenes strategizing with his brothers and his brothers' political aides, despite being viewed by some as a breach of basic journalistic ethics. But documents, as they were released, You know, painted this picture of him not only offering counsel, but also leaning on news outlets like The New Yorker and The Politico to provide information around upcoming coverage on his brother. I have always enjoyed watching and listening to Chris Cuomo. He's smart, level-headed, is very good at probing guests with tough questions, and even uh, on occasion calls them out when they are being less than candid. All of that said, I have to admit, even in good times, you know, when his brother, mm-hmm. Governor Andrew Cuomo, was not in the middle of a controversy, I always felt a little, we mission a bit awkward when chris would be interviewing his brother mm-hmm. the governor on the air admittedly it's a rare circumstance where one family produces of the one of the most popular news show anchors and a governor <laughs> of one of the most populous states in the US but gary you were a journalist mm-hmm. before going into politics and then public relations and communication did CNN ever handle this relationship appropriately? What should it have done?
1: You know, Mike, I'm not right about many things, but I remember during this time when Chris Cuomo and Andrew Cuomo were doing their little comedy act on CNN, I said to my wife, Barb, and I used to watch it and said, they, both of these people will regret this eventually. It, I, I just thought it was inappropriate. And it was great to have some levity in, in a serious time, but it wasn't good journalism. And mm-hmm. I, I think in this case, look, I'm biased here because I know Jeff Zucker. He's a good leader and he's handled mm-hmm. situations like this in the past, including one I was involved in with Don Imus when Jeff was at NBC Universal, and I thought he handled that we well. We made the
2: comments about Rutgers.
1: Yes, and I thought Jeff handled that well. And yeah. I also know Alison Gallist, who is the head of communications at CNN. And I know this is important to her. This kind of journalistic ethics are, are important to her. And I think here's what you the thing is. think there's a little bit of myopia, though? Yeah. Oh, you yeah. I, a little bit of my,
2: yeah Because, yes. I mean, this, this, this guy was you know, a moneymaker for them. Right. Yes. And And he was very popular.
1: That's right. And I, I do think there is a longer leash given in circumstances for people who are popular, highly rated. There's no doubt in my mind that that happens. Ultimately, they made the right choice here. I also think the possibility that there are more allegations being made against Chris Cuomo involving his own alleged sexual harassment charges when he was at ABC. So ultimately, they got to the right decision. I would have preferred they had made this earlier when the first reports came out, particularly, Mike, around the idea that he was going to dig up dirt, try to discredit one of the governor's accusers. Mm
2: -hmm. Well, and and again, I come back to in a kinder, gentler time, I I think it even seemed awkward that he would ever be interviewing his
1: brother. Totally.
2: So anyway, turning to to yet another story, the the world of politics and sports, you know, through the ages, they've often collided, you know, and at the very first modern Olympic Games in 1896, there was this thing where they were having a hard time getting Germany and France to <laughs> participate because the two geopolitical rivals were still cross with one another due to the Franco-Prussian War that had ended more than 20 years prior. And the Olympic Games have, have, have seen boycotts, I think, at least five that I'm aware of. You might remember, Gary, that the U.S. boycotted the Moscow Olympics in 1980 after the Soviets invaded Afghanistan. And then the Soviet Union and several of its allies retaliated four years later because the Olympic Games were going to be in Los Angeles. And then the sad circumstances back in 1972 when Israeli athletes were murdered by Palestinian terrorists after having been taken hostage at the Munich Games. And then racial discrimination has been front and center at the 1936 and 1968 Olympic Games, 1936 when Jesse Owens broke racial boundaries by dominating the track and field events in Hitler's Berlin, and in 1968 in Mexico, US athletes Tommy Smith and John Carlos were expelled from the Olympic Village after raising their fists at a medal ceremony in solidarity with the black power movement. And in fact it's 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 interesting. I've asked this question of several people. You know, do you even remember what event and what medals Tommy Smith and John Carlos won?
1: Oh, I love the Mexico Games. Uh, they were track. Uh, was it the 400 Mike, 400. It was
2: a 200. The 200.
1: 200
2: And and Tommy Smith got the gold and John Carlos got the bronze. Bronze, I say that because what we tend to remember them for is this this act of of, of solidarity with the Black Power Movement. That's how strong a moment it was. Very powerful. And then the upcoming Beijing Winter Olympics, slated to begin on February 4th, has already created a stir. One of China's most recognizable athletes today, tennis star Peng Shui, accused a former top Communist Party official, Vice Premier Zheng Gaioli, of forcing her to have sex three years ago, in a sense, deleted social media posts that was dated back first week of November. Now, Peng was immediately muffled by kind of blanket censorship and kind of disappeared from public view for at least two weeks. When this happened, the Women's Tennis Association, which is the principal governing body Mm -hmm. for professional women's tennis, announced an immediate suspension of all tournaments in China, including Hong Kong, in response to the Beijing government silencing of their Chinese tennis star. And then the International Tennis Foundation, which is kind of the governing body that deals with the Grand Slam events and some annual team competitions, as well as sanctions some major tournaments, has now been facing calls to do the same. But the ITF has said it does not want to punish a billion people by suspending hmm. tournaments in China. And Chinese authorities, if you might imagine, have not exactly acknowledged Peng's allegations against Zhang, and there's no indication that an investigation is even underway. At a news conference this past week, responding to a question about WTA's withdrawal, A spokesperson for China's Ministry of Foreign Affairs, said China has always been firmly opposed to any act that politicizes sports. (laughs) Enter the U.S. government. In addition to Peng's treatment, the U.S. and Western countries have been pressured by human rights activists about the treatment of Uyghurs, a mostly Muslim ethnic group and the largest minority group in the northwestern Chinese province of Xinjiang. Stories abound about large numbers of Uyghurs being used as forced labor to support mm-hmm. the textile and clothing industry there. In fact, we talked about that on this show back in the spring. And there have also been statements from Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch about charges of torture, sexual abuse, and, and genocide. And in and, and from our discussions, you might remember in the spring, there were a number of Western fashion companies that have boycotted uh, the use of cotton and textiles from the province, including Adidas, or as they say in Europe, Adidas, Mm -hmm. H&M, Nike, and, and, and Ralph Lauren. So this Monday, actually this past Monday, yeah, like yesterday, (laughs) the Biden administration announced that it will not be sending any American government officials to the Winter Games in Beijing, effectively creating a diplomatic boycott. A Chinese foreign minister said if the U.S. insists in willfully clinging to its course, China will take resolute countermeasures. Mm. European nations are still under pressure to follow suit. The US Olympic Committee previously has said that it did not support a boycott preventing American athletes from competing in Beijing, which of course this diplomatic embargo, if you will, or boycott does not. Gary, I know. Your former employer, GE, has been an International Olympic Committee sponsor, as have several companies I have worked for through the years, even going back to the old Eastman Kodak company.
1: Kodak, yeah. When it
2: comes to women's tennis, does the WTA or the ITF have this right? And when it comes to human rights violations against Uyghurs in Northwest China, are the actions of the US government appropriate and wise and and I'm throwing a lot of questions at you here because I have lots of questions <laughs> and, and, and I just wonder if there's anything that those who sponsor sport should be doing vis-a-vis China on any one of uh, on either one of these two right. things or should the Olympic games and professional women's tennis remain outside the realm of politics
1: Boy, lots of questions. And I have, you know, a, there's my heart in my head on this, Mike. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, on both. I, I, I love the Olympics. And by the way, impressive history. Uh, of the olympics that was uh, very. i love the yeah.
2: olympics i love the olympics <laughs> I, I i literally i i am a, a nut about the olympics you know i at one point i probably could have given you curling statistics too
1: <laughs> i'm gonna start calling you pierre de coubertin you know the, <laughs> there you found, go.
2: the, the founder <laughs> of the modern games Yeah,
1: exactly so and i loved being a sponsor i i, I but the let me start with the tennis i i just think particularly in women's tennis, I, I think the WTA has this right. And, and look, if the team itself, and let's remember that the Chinese teams are the government. The okay. government are the teams. It's not like in other countries, uh, democratic countries like the US. So I think the WTA is right in pulling out the tournaments there because it is the government that puts the teams together, that funds them, that you know, really takes young people from birth and, and trains them to be athletes very specifically. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm with the WTA. They have to protect the players. And when team sponsors, such as the Chinese government, do not, there has to be some measure of a sanction for them. On the Olympics, man, I, I, I was a sponsor. I have spent time at the IOC headquarters in Switzerland to talk about sponsorships And the Olympic Games have made progress on this issue of human rights, Mm -hmm. on the issue of where the games are held, but I think they need a fundamental Mm do-over. Very few countries are actually bidding to host the games anymore, Mike. You know, because
2: right. the cost of it, right?
1: The cost of it. You you're saddled with debt for many years. You have these rotting facilities that are not not of any put to any use for the community. So I, I just think there has to be a solution where there can be some kind of a place to hold the games on a permanent basis. Is I don't know if that's possible in in the world in which we live today with such a polarized world. But I hope the Olympic Games can take a step back and take a look at this. And it's funny, you know, activists go after the sponsors of the Olympic Games on these issues, mostly relating to human rights, other issues as well, too. But they don't do it in other sports. For example, in tennis, there are sponsors of the women's tour, there are sponsors of the men's tour, and events and tournaments are held everywhere in Russia, and other places where that clearly have human rights issues. I don't have an answer for you. I, I, it's gotta be about the athletes and it can't impose these huge burdens on communities that wanna host sporting events, financial burdens. Becky Edwards, you know, who we both Mm -hmm. know was, I really think did some great work at the IOC when she was there as head of communications in modernizing how the games looks at site selection for the games and, and, and dealing with activists and sponsors, but I, th- I still think it has a long way to go.
2: Yeah. So what do you think of the U S actions around this yeah. in terms of going for a diplomatic boycott?
1: Yeah, I, I, I don't, I, I think that again, punishes athletes in some ways that Mike, it's always good to have your American representatives there as an athlete Yeah. to, to, you know, as a sort of cheer you
2: on and support. Exactly,
1: e- exactly. And, and I'm always a believer in engagement versus half measures. Mm-hmm. And I think this is a half measure by the United States. I would never support a, a an athlete boycott, but uh, I would send diplomats. And by the way, when they're there, you don't want to politicize the games, but before they go, they can make statements about what they believe is wrong in in China. And and so uh, I don't support it. I think it's a half measure and I don't think it's going to have much impact.
2: Yeah. And it's interesting. I, I mean, it, to your point being a half measure, it's not like what the U.S. did vis-a-vis Moscow. And then on the other hand, if I go back to 1980, I don't think it helped Jimmy Carter much No, that, that this was done. I think there was some thought that would give in the midst of the hostage crisis would give him a sense that he had some, you know, strength and a real constitution around, you know, sticking it to the Soviets. Yeah. And instead, even then, there were lots of stories about these athletes who had worked for this, you know, precious moment. Their whole and, and, yeah. and, and it just slipped through their fingers because of uh, a political position taken by the president of the United States.
1: Yeah. And, and by the way, I've been to Beijing many times Whoever, yes, whoever thought there'd be a winter games there i, I you know uh, i i was there for the summer games <laughs> but i i just didn't it does know snow that there
2: that. i've been there when it snowed
1: yeah i i have not so oh. uh i'm i'm looking forward to seeing and watching how this all comes together i'm sure the well, chinese will pull it off mike that's that's somehow some
2: way right there, yeah right? exactly we'll gary how would you like to be invited to a zoom call with your company CEO, along with many of your colleagues, only to have your CEO say, if you're on this call, you are part of the unlucky group that is being laid off. Your employment here is terminated effective immediately. Wow. That's exactly. That's exactly what Better.com CEO Vishal Garg said on a Zoom call when he fired more than 900 employees, or 9% of his mortgage company's workforce this past week.
1: Holy smokes!
2: Garg also said employees could expect an email from HR detailing benefits and severance. Garg cited. Market efficiency, performance, and productivity as the reason behind the firings. But then the tail, I mean, it's like other people have really, you know, pulled on the string here, and Fortune Magazine reported that Garg actually accused employees of stealing from colleagues and customers by being unproductive and working less than full hours. And uh, and Better.com, at the same time as a business, you know, I've been on this kick about trying to better understand SPACs as, as an alternative to traditional IPOs. Well, they did a SPAC they put out there in May. And last week, it was, it was told that they had received $750 million in cash as part of the deal. The company apparently is prepared to have more than a billion dollars on, on its balance sheet. Meanwhile, you know, Garg has been involved in controversy after controversy. And, and, and Forbes shared this past week an email he had sent to staff some time ago where, where he wrote, you are too damn slow. You are a bunch of dumb dolphins. So stop it, stop it, stop it right now. You are embarrassing me. That's what he wrote. Wow. So Gary, this does not resemble anything like the type of internal communications you and I have come to expect (laughs) from either our employers or our clients. I, I, I get it that some CEOs believe they need to be candid and straightforward with employees but isn't this a step too far and shouldn't the better.com CEO know better and understand the kind of signal his words are sending to key stakeholders, not the least of which are future employees. You know, how does he get good talent to join the ranks of better.com going forward?
1: night is this, so better.com is a mortgage company? Is it's that... a
2: mortgage company. Yep. It's an online mortgage company.
1: Oh, uh, wow. Well, well... Would you ever, even as a client or customer? Would Absolutely you, not. Right. Actually, you, you know, you, even if
2: it's shaved, it shaved, you know, a half a percent. Forget right.
1: it. Right. So, look, the only thing I think for this fellow to do is apologize. And... I
2: think he should say the same words into a mirror.
1: Right. <laughs> exactly right. You know, and, You're fired. And... You're out of here. <laughs> You are an embarrassment to me. So, you know, that's the only thing to do. And honestly, I just don't know how he leads after something like that. I don't know what his holdings are in the firm, in the company, but if I were involved either as a private investor or however, this company, you know, he'd have to go.
2: Yeah. It's just amazing. There's
1: no way he can motivate people. There's no way he can recruit people. And as a, you know, you're talking about boycotts, Mm -hmm. man this would be one where it would be richly deserved.
2: Take a fork in it, he's
1: done. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly.
2: And now, another interesting story with a political bent is there was an opinion piece that caught my eye this past week in the Washington Post from columnist Dana Milbank, where he writes, the media treats Biden as badly as or worse than Trump, As proof, he cites a sampling of headlines in his piece from the Politico Playbook newsletter over the past month. He also references a sentiment analysis, which you and I are both familiar yep. with in the PR mm-hmm. game. But the, this sampling was from more than 200,000 200, articles from 65 news websites, rating the coverage that Biden received in his First 11 months of 2021, and comparing that to the coverage President Donald Trump received in his first 11 months of 2020. So, a year on, year on kind of comparison. Yeah, yeah. After a honeymoon of slightly positive coverage in the first three months of the past year, Biden's press for the past four months has been pretty bad. Mm -hmm. And he writes, think about that. In 2020, Trump presided over a worst-in-world pandemic response that caused hundreds of thousands of unnecessary deaths, held a super spreader event at the White House, and got COVID-19 himself, praised QAnon adherents embraced violent white supremacists, waged a racist campaign against Black Lives Matter demonstrators, attempted to discredit mail-in voting, and refused to accept his defeat in a free and fair election, leading eventually to the violence we all saw on January 6th and causing tens of millions of people to kind of believe in that big lie that somehow the election was taken away from him. And yet, Milbank writes, Trump got press coverage as favorable as or better than Biden is getting today. Sure, Biden has had his troubles with the Delta variant, Afghanistan, and inflation, but the economy is rebounding impressively. He has signed major legislation and he has restored some measure of decency, calm, and respect for democratic institutions. That's what Milbank writes. Mm-hmm. Gary, is Dana Milbank right? Are too many journalists caught in a mindless neutrality between democracy and its saboteurs, and between fact and fiction? Or is this just a political defense of the Biden administration from a left-leaning journalist?
1: I'm loathe to criticize journalists because it's such a hard job these days, real journalists. yeah. Not the people on the fringes who pretend to be journalists. Mm -hmm. However, I do think Milbank has a very good point. This equivalence of policy decisions versus what clearly are by Trump anti-democratic
2: actions. Law matters, right?
1: Rule of law, moral lack of morality or care for other people. The uh, release of information this week that he had tested positive for the, the. before the debate and endangered a number of people and probably transmitted COVID to others. Those things aren't equivalent to a decision on withdrawing from Afghanistan and how to do it, what to do about inflation. Those are not equivalent actions from a moral, ethical, social, it's just, it it, it baffles me how negative the press has been on Biden. Sure, there's been bumps in the road, as you say, but I just think here's what I would say. There's a cover story, Mike, this month on, in the Atlantic magazine by a guy named Barton Gilman, who's really just terrific. And the headline is January 6th was just the beginning. And it outlines the campaign that's underway to undermine democracy leading toward the 2024 election, the groundwork of which was laid in 2020, as is, is you have laid out here. So it's an ex- existential threat to democracy. And the fact that that was covered in an equivalent manner to policy decisions, I think, is a failure of, of journalism. I don't, what do you think? Yeah.
2: Well, so, so, so I, have, I have two theories at play here. One is like yours, is that the media, particularly in the last decade, has found itself inching towards this grand equivalency that we're going to show one side, and then we're going to show the other side, and then we're not showing favoritism. The problem with that equivalency, obviously, is you take something that clearly is beyond the pale and you make it uh, normative. Right. You make it somehow fit as... As a logical extension of an argument that doesn't make any sense, at least to this individual. Mm -hmm. And then the other side of it is I, I, I think that some of this is politics at play too, in the sense that so what Trump did is he played to the most extremist elements within the Republican Party. And it's not what You or I would define as the traditional Republican Party at all, right? But he played to them, and they in turn, you know, provided a strong base that was always going to support him. Enter Joe Biden, right, in 2020, winning the presidential race. Joe Biden won the race as a left of center Democrat, but more center than the far left within his party. And 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 so what I think is in part happening is that Biden gets beat up by the Trumplicans, if you will,
1: <laughs> the term
2: that Chris Cuomo liked to use. And then on the other, he's even getting beat up by the left in his own party. And so that makes it very, very difficult for him because because I don't know that there's a defined base that we would call, you know, kind of by yeah. desk or, and, and, and I think that that politically as well as journalistically hurts him. And yes. it hurts him particularly in a world where things are on one hand, you know, either in or out. Right. And because he's he's neither. <laughs> right. <laughs>
1: Yeah, it it is a, I think journalism, you know, it's going to have to do some real reflection on where we're headed as a country in the US, because these elements that are undermining the democracy seem to be getting stronger, not weaker, which many people had hoped with the election of Biden. And I, I think journalism has to commit itself to covering this with some more intensity, and a little bit more of subjectivity, really. I know objectivity is the, the point of journalism, but it's hard to cover this without drawing conclusions, this movement that's going on in the Republican Party in many parts of the country to really undermine the democracy. Yeah.
2: So the last item I want to bring your way is a little bit of uh, maybe... Uh holiday spirit. Yikes. Gary, when I was growing up, I remember a humorous holiday song from Spike Jones. you might recall it, titled All I Want for Christmas is My Two Front Teeth. Yeah. And I, th- I think I even had a Christmas like that where I was missing my two front teeth. <laughs> and many fans of Mariah Carey and fans of the holiday rom-com Love Actually know the song All I Want for Christmas is You. Yeah. But The holiday Twitter post of a congressman from Kentucky had one of his political fans comment, all I want for Christmas is more ammo. Kentucky Republican Tom Macy tweeted a holiday greeting with a Christmas tree in the background and a rifle or semi-automatic weapon in the hands of every smiling member of his family in the photo with the caption, Merry Christmas, exclamation point, P.S. P.S. Santa, please bring ammo. Mm -hmm. Remind you, the photo was posted just days after the 15-year-old student in Michigan, you know, took out four other teenagers at his school and left seven others injured after going on a rampage using his father's newly purchased weapon. Families of students killed in previous school shootings have spoken out against the post, as have a few political figures. Despite the criticism, several prominent names in US conservative circles have defended the congressman. Congressman, by the way, is on record as a staunch record of the as a staunch supporter, I should say, of the Second Amendment, the right to to keep and bear arms, that is, and has long opposed any gun control initiative saying in interviews that they would not stop school massacres. Mm -hmm. Gary, what should we make of this? Is this a sign of the times? Should the congressman apologize or should fellow members move to censure his actions?
1: Well, it is a sign of the times where people worship guns. Somehow it's become a, you know, a part of this lore of this country that to be a patriot, you also have to be a gun owner. And, and I just, I can't understand how that happened. And certainly doing this four days after this Michigan sh- school shooting, Mike, I am stunned by how little attention that shooting received from the media. And maybe we're just numb to these things now we don't have a lot of people that we admire in politics these days, it seems. But I I would say this, I've been a Republican all my life, but there's a Democrat in the Senate named Chris Murphy from Connecticut. And of course, Connecticut had the Newtown shooting, you know, a decade or so ago. And go and watch what Chris Murphy had to say on the floor of the Senate about that Michigan shooting, and about the lack of action in protecting young people from gun violence. It, it actually is something to be admired. Mm-hmm. So I, I wanted to, to point that out. This guy from Kentucky is a clown. If all he has to offer to his constituents is a love of guns in a country that is has an epidemic, a plague of gun violence, not only in schools, but in our cities, then he shouldn't be in Congress.
2: Well, and I always think about the holiday season and three words that most logically come up in my head are peace on earth Yes, this is a far cry from it
1: that's right that's right well said
2: with that let's move on to a cheerier note and move on to our discussion with the dean of boston university's college of communication mariette de christina
1: Our guest today on The Crux is the Dean of Boston University's College of Communication, Mariette DiCristina. And this is really a a momentous day for The Crux, not just because we have a great guest, but because Mariette is our first repeat guest. She appeared... Yeah, this is our 68th episode of The Crux. and, And Mariette appeared on the 31st podcast back in April 2020, just as BU was shutting down because of the COVID pandemic. And before I tell you a little bit more about Mary, let me describe the organization that she leads. The BU College of Communication offered the first, the world's first degree in public relations in 1947. The first PhD degrees in emerging media studies in 2015. And today, COM has 2,500 students from 52 countries. That's amazing. And an alumni network of more than 30,000 graduates including winners of top awards such as Pulitzer's, Emmys, Clio's, as well as CEOs, studio heads, and stars in TV and radio. Now back to Mariette. Before coming to BU, she was Editor-in-Chief and Executive Vice President of the highly respected magazine Scientific American, as well as Executive Vice President of magazine publisher Springer Nature. Mariette was the first woman to lead Scientific American, since its founding in 1845, wow. And previously as editor of Popular Science, she was named Editor of the Year by the magazine's publisher, Times Mirror Magazine. In 2016, BU, Boston University, honored Mariette with a Distinguished Alumni Award. And Mariette, you're completing your second year as Dean of Comm, as we refer to it, the College of Communication. And it's been a time full of surprises, and changes in communications and society. We'll talk with Mariette about that today, as well as the future of communications education, a new BU program called SciCommerce, the role that communications plays in social progress, and see if we can get her to disagree with her boss, BU President Bob Brown, <laughs> who was a guest on The Crux earlier this year. Dean Di- Di Cristina, welcome to The Crux.
0: Hey, thanks for having me. I'm super excited and honored to be back.
1: So, as I mentioned, you were first on the crux back in April 2020. BU is just moving to remote learning this semester. You're, we are back in the classroom uh, across BU, across the university. But for you, particularly at at Com Marriott, what were the overriding leadership lessons for you that came out of this tumultuous period when we transitioned? from in-person to remote and now back to in-person?
0: Well, th- thanks for the great question. And you know, it's funny, we were just reflecting on leadership. And I actually think a lot, at least in my own leadership style about, do you remember the, the really compelling image from the animated movie, Up? Mm-hmm. and The house is flying into the air with thousands of balloons with lots of strings. To me, that that actually is a is a nice (laughs) visual metaphor for how I often think about leadership, and especially during the pandemic, you are lifted by all the connections that you have with each of your team members. And Gary, you'll know this at at COM. We're we love our COM words and our COM puns. So, you know, (laughs) that's that's both due to communication and community. And so, I think of my connections with the team as you know hundreds of those little strings and they lift up the enterprise. And if anything, the pandemic really underscored that for me. And we we started as a, as a college of communication. So we, you know, I know you spoke with President Brown about uh, the residential learning experience here. We have, you know, we had to in two, three days, pack up everybody to go home yeah. for lockdown. And so the value of communication and building community through the digital platforms that we have available in society now became even that more important. It was already hugely important for college of communication, but became even more important as, as a leadership tool. And I found myself trying to reach out and connect through a variety of new ways. you know, aided, aided and abetted by things like Zoom. Right. Hate sometimes and social platforms and, and everything else that I know you and, and, and Mike certainly have, have used throughout your careers, but but in kind of a more, I don't know, intense way, because we weren't distracted by quote unquote distracted by the in-person experience. We were just living through our devices.
1: Yeah. That's a great image of up and and community. And I, I have to say, as since I was a part of it and went through it. I was just really across the university, but particularly in COM, the willingness of everyone to sort of do the best they could and to learn something new so quickly, uh, meaning Zoom technology and other platforms, that kind of thing. So there really was a sense of community that I felt as we went through it and continues to be because we're all still riding this roller coaster related to the pandemic on how we connect with each other. And that's what I love about COM is that collegiality in that community is really obvious. So let me, let me jump to the past a little bit and then see what it portends for the future. You know, this great legacy of the College of Communication at BU that I mentioned is, is something that we're really proud of, but this is a field, meaning communications, public relations, journalism, advertising, across the board, that is changing every day. And, and one of the things I want to mention is that Com is, you know, Mike and I are PR practitioners, right? But there's, we have courses in in fields of study in advertising, emerging media, journalism, of course, all of those things changing every day. How have the crisis of the past few years changed communication overall? Mary, Mm -hmm. would you say? I mean, it certainly has changed. You mentioned it in your answer to the first question, but in the areas that we, where we study and where we teach, What's been the most significant change?
0: Yeah, thank you for another great question. I mean, I I think the crises only exacerbated what was already happening. In fact, turn back to the clock for a minute to the beginning of the pandemic, and so much misinformation was swirling around that the World Mm -hmm. Health Organization called it an infodemic, right? So this is, you know, these sort of the flaws of our media, current media ecosystem become really visibly crystallized in in any giant circumstance, and a a pandemic, I think brought out maybe the worst in us in many ways. Mm -hmm. But what's underlying that is something that started happening, gosh, I remember from the 80s and 90s even, the sweeping digital change of all of our industries. So as we began to use these new tools, and especially as we began scaling them, and now let, let's talk about social media here for, for just a minute, through a variety of business model changes, and I don't, I don't want to go too deep into that for, for the moment, but but also in, in how our social platforms both help us to speak to each other and separate us. So they, they help us in that mm. everybody's got the same size soapbox, well, you know, at least to start with, before we become influencers and so <laughs> on. But they, they hurt us in that they're they've caused more fractured media, you know, media ecosystem in, in two ways. One is algorithms that underpin all of the platforms look for things that are new and different, and then they kind of accelerate the that sharing by weighting them. And that has a tendency to enhance the impact of a misinformed post or, you know, active disinformation as well. And the other thing that's happening is you're able to follow people, only people you like. So we end up in little bubbles of communication. And so Mm. between the two, you know, we end up with, with hyper enhanced misinformation, pinging around echo chambers that are of our own making. And those, those two things, plus a shift to greater polarization have been really, problematic in our media ecosystem today.
1: Yeah, and that last thing compounds the first, right? I mean, mm-hmm. this polarization where people self-select and where they get their information and often, as you say, those algorithms are are passing along or weighting uh, more greatly some of the misinformation and disinformation we're seeing across the board.
0: Yeah, I mean, but I, if I could just add one quick thing there, what I used to say to a colleague of mine, who love to point out problems <laughs> and and that was very helpful as i would say congratulations you've reached step one <laughs> you realized <you> <laughs> solutions right because you realize what the issues are and knowing those and, and kind of fully understanding those which I, I think we'll talk a little bit more about later will help us to address them i didn't say solve exactly them. <laughs> because uh, it's more complicated than that but at least we can address them
2: exactly yeah Well, Mary, it's it's great to be with you again. This fall, Gary and I on the crux have have really been talking a lot about what you seem to be inching towards here, which is the role of communication and communicators in actually addressing major issues and even societal problems. And I remember reading the mission statement when I was part of the faculty at the College of Communication, where it says, We build understanding through communication education, practice, and discovery. Explain for our listeners the role communication schools can play in building broader societal understanding and engaging some of these major issues. Yeah,
0: thanks, Mike, for the great question. By the way, great to be here with you as well today. So let's let's dial back for a second to talk about how society gets anything done. You know, you have, let's say, a a new way to filter water or a cure for cancer or anything Hmm. else. At the heart of any progress whatsoever is okay. Yes, the advances that we might have, the scientific advances. Not meaning to make light of that, especially not as a science journalist, but that at the heart of what enables that progress is communication. And it's that very, you know sort of human brain to brain exchange where I have an idea and I want to share it with you so that you will understand it and do something with it. The thing you do with it could be you know you share it with somebody else, or it could be that you you use it in some way. but if if I couldn't build an understanding for you, literally nothing would happen,
1: <laughs> you know, uh-huh. if you could
0: imagine it a society where we just couldn't communicate. So that's, what's, that's why we chose that, you know, two word phrase, build understanding, because we thought put aside all the platforms, put aside the fact that we have both practitioners, you know, uh, great folks such as yourselves and in, in, in our other disciplines and put aside that we have the researchers who are, who are looking at it, you know, the, the core thing here is one human to another. Can I, can I help you understand Mm -hmm. something? And colleges of communication like ours in a changed media ecosystem, like we were just describing, we, we not only have the opportunity, we have the responsibility to make this a better place, you know, to, to make communication more productive, more whole, more trustworthy, you know, more reliable. And, you know, if, if today's very digitally reliant society, especially through the pandemic, you know, isn't a call to action. I don't know what is.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, you and Gary have already pointed out that the that there's some real, real breadth to, to the, the College of Communication, of and certainly one of the disciplines is near and dear to your heart in terms of journalism. You're mm-hmm. an accomplished journalist. I'm curious about your assessment of the state of journalism. Mm-hmm. Certainly, the profession has been challenged as never before in the last decade or so re- economically one could argue too that and i think you've already pointed this out somewhat as we talk about echo chambers and how they form that in the u.s particularly it's it's even been challenged by the politics of the day and in many ways I mean, we just saw you know, CNN just this past week fired its top anchor primarily over a conflict of interest in that Chris Cuomo was counseling his brother, who also was governor of New York, while working as an anchor. But even beyond that event, right, we know that the fourth estate has lost some trust amongst the general citizenry. The Edelman Trust Barometer shows a decline in media trust from a high of 65% in the beginning of 2017 to dropping to 53% earlier this year, so a 12-point shift downward. What's the biggest challenge as you see it for journalism?
0: so you know asking me what the biggest challenge is that's a that's a that's a tough one <laughs> <laughs> okay so easy like- only easy questions <laughs> here <laughs> let, me <try laughs> me, let me just frame the problem a tiny bit more i, I yeah. promise you don't go on too long mike but yeah. just just so people understand the a little bit more of the context you're quite mm-hmm. right about about the business model changing and i i won't go into that too much this, yeah. lot that's been said about that yeah. parallel with that the you know the the fact that reporters now there are fewer of them on the ground right. and they have to go faster because now they're not just doing a text story or a video story or a podcast they are doing all of those platforms plus social platforms which you're both using for reporting and for providing their reporting to others so they're yeah across platforms all the time with the Fractured media ecosystem that we have just talked about with, you know, sort of the social bubbles and echo chambers, the misinformation, peppering everything, the polarization, thanks to, you know, the changes in our national dialogue. So that all that is a backdrop for the five-letter word that I'm going to say to you, which is trust. Mm-hmm. You know, when I think about journalism going forward, it is all going to be about how do we rebuild and broadcast trust there are lots of ways to approach that. Um, Some of them, for instance, you know, we we have a lot of communication researchers at the college, and we had a a researcher visiting us a couple weeks ago, and he just did a study where a local newspaper decided not to use any wire services for a period of time. I think it was a few months, maybe it was three or four months, and they thought, what would be the effect on trust of just having local coverage from local reporters with no National inputs, trust went up. That's an interesting signal.
1: Yeah.
0: Another thing reporters can do in their everyday jobs are indicate that they're a trustworthy messenger because when listeners or watchers or readers are viewing their work, they're looking for signals of intention. So some reporters can, you know, just kind of flag that the, the the job is to find, you know, an objective quote unquote picture of the truth so that people can make decisions in society about about various things and and move forward with them. So there are, you know, these are just two of many ways that I think journalism and journalists are looking at how can they build that trust again and move forward from where we are now.
2: That's really interesting. Back in in 2019, when you were still editor at Scientific American, you wrote the scientific process is an engine of human prosperity. <laughs> For centuries, it has been a driving force behind the advances in knowledge and well being that we've enjoyed as a species. But none of us can benefit from that evidence-based engine if we don't first communicate well with one <laughs> another. We need to be able to share new ideas and the products of research. The recipients need to be able to trust trust mm. that the information is true and to understand an innovation's possible advantages or drawbacks so that we can make sound decisions as a society about what to do with it. If we cannot impart what we are learning to one another in this foundational way, we will simply, we simply won't continue to progress. In the intervening months, the public's trust of science and scientists, have all also diminished. We've seen this with COVID vaccine, climate change, and other scientific issues that have been politicized. I think it was it had already started a bit. In fact, I remember a few years ago where National Geographic had a cover story and, and the title was The War on Science. But this must be frustrating for a science journalist like yourself. Tell us a little bit about BU's new communications program, SciCommerce. What's that all about?
0: Yeah, th- thanks, Mike. Thanks for the, for the great question. And you know, I think, well, just to reflect quickly on the, the frustration aspect or that, you know, that you're, that you're mm-hmm. raising, you know, and and first of all, I'm glad to hear I'm consistent with something <laughs> I wrote about. <laughs> If you hadn't told me I wrote that two years ago, I was thinking, "Hey, that's pretty good." <laughs> um, you know, so, so you know, two two things here. One is something something the average person doesn't necessarily remember from high school science is that uncertainty in science is a feature, not a bug. It is. Is science's job? It kind of like journalism, actually. Um, maybe that's why the two go so well together for me. Is is to identify, you know, what the world looks like through evidence and facts and data, and then you you can kind of draw conclusions once you understand those. And and we saw a lot of uncertainty. At the beginning of the pandemic you know do, do you are you supposed to wear your mask are you not supposed to wear your mask mm-hmm. or or, and many other things you know what's safe what are what are viable treatments where did the virus come from you, you name it and i think as we you know as we communicate about on un- topics with uncertainty we have to frame that for people we have to tell people you know we are at this stage and this is a good thing You know, yeah. as, as we are you know and not just assume that they understand that because the second thing I want to mention is we have many, many ways. Our brains are amazing, but in many, many ways, they they, they have built-in errors in them. that are called cognitive biases. There are dozens. And mm-hmm. one of them is when a message gets out in the first place and it's not the ideal way, we may remember that anyway. It's called the anchoring effect. It might, you know, things get stuck in your head yeah. not to wear a mask, for instance. And then if somebody else says to you, well, you shouldn't wear one because it's a free country. Well, maybe that sounds just that more persuasive because you heard that in the first place. So Mm -hmm. now, now to answer your question about sci-commerce, I think science communication or any communication, right, is best done when we all do it in the, you know, using the best ways and especially around science, you know, early on scientists were the opposite of rewarded for communicating their science. (laughs) You know, they're, they're, they needed they were rewarded based on meaning hired promoted tenured mm-hmm. based on how many studies they got published in which high level journals high impact journals they're called because they get cited a lot and scientists who communicated like carl sagan there's a there's a famous expression in science the carl sagan effect and that means you communicate a lot but you don't get recognized by the community by the science community that for doing that communication An antidote, or at least one way to address that, is to reward scientists by giving them the support they need, first of all, and giving them recognition for it. And SciCommerce is a step in that direction. SciCommerce was started a half a dozen years ago at NPR by my friend and a wonderful science reporter, Joe Palka. And it is a community of a couple thousand scientists who are just dedicated to the public understanding of science. And that community has is for, which is free for researchers. Any of you listening, that community has chats with mentors. You know, for instance, Mike and Gary. It'd be awesome to get you to come talk to the scientists <laughs> about how to share their work. We have editors who work with the scientists if who want to say publish something in a in a popular media outlet. Maybe maybe an opinion editorial with the facts about a new health situation, just as an example. And we have community peer support with Slack channels where they can in an ongoing way, talk about things. And I see SciCommerce as a, as an anchor or a, you know, sort of a, an activity that we add to the longtime science journalism we've offered at Com and at BU mm-hmm. and, um, and science communication more broadly as well.
1: Terrific. That sounds, it's so important in so many ways. Mike and I are old corporate war horses, you know, and, 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 business is having a really difficult time talking about science. And, and in the public realm, in courtrooms, and and we just need to do, a. I think, from a, a business point of view, a whole reevaluation of how you rebuild trust in experts, and particularly scientists. It's so important to business particularly, but obviously important to us all from a public health standpoint. Yeah,
0: so if I could I, just add quickly. Um, go ahead, Maria. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but we have conversations called comm talks that we do a few times a month that are virtual and captured. So for your listeners, there's one that is happening, happens to be on, on, uh, on Wednesday this week. So by the time this podcast is available, it will be available as a recording on the comm website. If you click events, it'll point you to it. And it is about, this very issue of science and communicating with the public and, and what more should we do? So there'd be a, a more lengthy conversation on those topics there.
1: Terrific. Terrific. No, I, I I said, Marietta, you have a broad portfolio. It's one of the things that I love about the College of Communication is having colleagues who are from different areas of the specialty or expertise and, and advertising is a part of the com curriculum. And advertising, both tradition the traditional model, print and broadcast, like journalism had been blown up in some ways by technology, but it seems to have transitioned quite deftly to a digital world. I looked it up and US ad sales are expected to hit a record 278 billion in 2021. So the industry itself is doing well. But as we look for more clarity in public dialogue, what role can advertising play?
0: Thank you, Gary. I mean, I was glad you mentioned in the intro that COM was started with the first public relations degree in 1947, but actually we've been teaching advertising since around 1914 and journalism Mm. as well. I didn't know that. Yeah, before there was a college, you know, well, first it was the School of Public Relations, but, you know, even before there was a school or a college of communication in in anybody's eye. There was was advertising and and journalism in classes at BU. I love how, you know, watching this industry uh, advertising, I love love how it is turning to ways that it can support companies' socially purposeful goals. And we're seeing some really interesting campaigns along those lines. I I might've said this to you before. but but you know just watching how some companies are deciding to use their you know what 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 personalities they use on social platforms what missions they choose to to address uh, one of my own quirky favorites is is the steak of meat slices because <laughs> they talk about critical thinking and, it's, and yeah. it's new in the world and they're fascinating i mean they're just fascinating yeah. so i love seeing advertisers you know and uh, supporting companies in these in these missions, because advertisers, unlike my own area of journalism, let's say, you know, are very adept at framing something the right way, you know, in the first place, yes. getting people to understand it at a strategic level, you know, because they, they think that way they're they're being thoughtful about how a message needs to land and I actually think a lot of us could learn about that sharing information by, by equally studying advertising. And, I, and on, at BU, I just want to mention too, I, I am so admiring of our student work in AdLab and, and PR Lab for that matter and Hothouse. AdLab has been around for decades taking client work, so nonprofit clients who are doing you know, terrific societally purposeful missions can apply to be supported by our, our, our student advertising you know, agency folks and they are doing amazing work.
1: That's, that's a great that's a great point. By the way, who would have thought as we talk about, you know, social purpose, that we would be talking about stakeums? You know, it's really, no, well, that's the thing, you know, so the unexpected, and by the way, I don't think I would have gotten through college if not for stakeums, you know, I, was, so. It was a staple of my diet at the time.
2: <laughs> well, You, you know, well, one question I'd love to pose, particularly since we've gotten a, a little bit around the various elements of the curriculum at the College of Communication and the various facets. And this is a question that was actually posed to me by a professional in the PR business who led a significant agency for a number of years. And one of the Question she posed to me was When it comes to public relations education, what sets the program at Boston University's College of Communication apart from other schools? Do you think of that? Do you think of it competitively in terms of how the College of Communication is perhaps positioned vis a vis other schools?
0: Yeah, thanks, Mike. I I certainly do. I mean, and I think there are two answers to that, you know, not just Mm -hmm. Not just the depth of expertise of our fantastic faculty, and by the way, Con also has thirty thousand, you know, alumni who yeah. are a continual resource for the college. But but also, I think about the competitive advantage of the broad, you know, the broad array of disciplines that are in this college. So I'll just, you know, we talked about practitioners, so we've mentioned advertising, public relations, journalism. We could add to that media science, film and TV, right. and then and then also emerging media studies. So understanding these digital platforms that are increasingly, you know, uh, so so present in our lives, and we have this these experts both on the practitioner side, so people people like all of us on the on the <laughs> conversation now, but but also our amazing researchers at the college who are trying to understand. What, what do these platforms do to us, <laughs> you know, individually in a mm-hmm. society, and what do we do to them? Like, how do we shape them going forward? So I, I think that both of those, both the depth of expertise of our amazing really accomplished award-winning faculty and the broad array that's offered at Com make it very unique indeed.
2: So when president Bob Brown was, was here earlier this year, we asked him about the future of higher education from a residential versus remote learning perspective. And his his view was interesting in that he talked about BU remaining focused on residential learning, but that some areas of study, such as BU's MBA program, lend themselves to remote learning and are aligned with BU's goals for more accessibility and affordability. Do you think the future of communication education at some point will include more remote opportunities than it
0: does today? Thanks Thanks for the question. I actually do agree with Bob here that it is a combination. We know, and, and studies show this too, if you bring a lot of humans together in community, there's more innovation and there's more, more patents will result, you know, with a certain density of humans in a city, for instance. We did a big article on that in Scientific American many years ago. Mm-hmm. So there are intrinsic benefits to bringing people physically together in person and learning in community. And I, I, I am not at all surprised to hear that President Brown sees that as an important part of BU's future and comms future too, for that matter. And I agree. At the same time, we would be remiss let's say in our duties as educators if we didn't make communication and other skills available through digital platforms because they they are they are available to us <laughs> and they you know mm-hmm. we, we do it now in small ways for instance um, you know we we use zoom to bring experts into the classroom from international or other locations. You know, we, we, we use Blackboard to house our materials for classrooms. So we, we do it in smaller ways. But, but I also do think that um, when you think about other learners, so learners who might be in the middle of their careers, learners mm-hmm. who are just curious about something, you know, people who want to brush up on a skill set, being able to make some of the kinds of knowledge available to them through, through digital platforms is, is only good sense. And I think the the fun part will be finding out, you know, the the what's and where's like you know, what kinds of topics, where where are the best what are the best platforms for them, where where is that best used, which students, and so on. And I really look forward to building that at COM with the faculty.
1: Mm-hmm. you know, I, I was hoping, Mike, here that we could create some space between Marriott and President <laughs> Brown, get some heat here on the on the crux, <laughs> you know, create some controversy, but uh, uh, obviously a reasonable answer and a good answer. And maybe we'll try again, Meredith, another time to drive a wedge, drive a wedge. between we
0: have to get hey, on at the same time so we could actually argue about it
1: Yeah, that's true. There exactly. you go. You know, a point counterpoint version of the crux. I'm going to ask about skills in course, which is what education is all about and providing students with the skills they need to succeed in their careers and their lives boy, things have changed for PR in the past few years. And and, and I get these kinds of, Mike, I know, has them as well, conversations with practitioners about, you know, they they need a whole new set of skills on their teams. How do you stay on top of the kinds of experiences and skills students need, not just in PR, but across the comm portfolio? How do you try to stay on top of that and anticipate that so that we have the right kind of experiences in the classroom.
0: Yeah, thank you for the for the question. So I had great experience as a journalist, I think, of being jack of all trades and really master <laughs> of none. Definitely. <laughs> mile wide person, right? And I'm well, for good or ill, I, I try to apply that in you know in helping the, the the staff and the faculty and the students here because of course not none of us is the sole answer for anything i mean uh, folks like you you know you gary or, or, and and mike when you were with us are are always bringing in expert knowledge but one secret for me is we have as i mentioned thirty thousand alumni for this college alone they are an endless resource i just spent last week in los angeles and in San Francisco, meeting with different alums and doing just what you were asking me about, asking them, "Hey, you know, here are our courses. What are some things you think we're missing? What are some skill sets or learning outcomes that that we should be giving the students that you need when you hire them?" Yeah, and it's that sort of virtuous circle of, you know, that we train them here, they go out into the world, they stay knee deep in in the industries, and then we keep in touch and. And tap them, uh, that helps our students keep going forward and, and keep getting those advantages.
1: You know that's such a great point, and 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 I've I found Ilan by the way willing to come in and talk to classes or via Zoom talk to classes and talk about how their jobs have changed and, and what they're seeing in their workplaces. So that it's such a such a great resource to have, and and really a deep willingness among them to. Uh, to be part of the classroom experience. Okay, so
0: one, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. Could go I go ahead, one more? Oh Sorry, um, I, I didn't talk enough about I think, and I just want to touch on this briefly. Our the research side of the shop when it comes yep. to skills, we have some, and we talked a lot about misinformation and the challenges of the media ecosystem earlier. I wanted to mention some of our, you know, the increasing number of researchers we've been adding to the college who are looking at what are called communication dysfunctions. And these two will be important skills for us to understand and know, you know, when we and help students who are going into the world with how to avoid these things on the platforms they create. For instance, Michelle Amazine is a civic science fellow funded by the Rita Allen Foundation and is exploring with researchers, other researchers here, including Arunamakrishna, the mechanisms of misinformation. And, you know, so what makes you more susceptible to that? And then how do you combat it? And so those kinds of skills too, that kind of knowledge, I just wanted to to uh, wave a flag over because it's really important as well.
1: Yeah, and you know, I, I just have increasingly, both Michelle and Arunima and others, just reading their work has helped me so much as a practitioner and thinking about mm-hmm. how I talk to clients because I we I still do some of that kind of work, but also trying to keep things as updated as possible in the classroom. When you look at that research, it really tells you what's going on. And uh, uh, today in, in, in among stakeholders in the public relations field and among journalists and the public in general. And, and I think the research that's going on at, at BUCOM is just really, really helpful to the practice uh, of public relations and, and associated areas. So mm-hmm. by the way, communications dysfunctions. I love that phrase, and one of these days we should do a show, Mike, on my career and the many communications dysfunctions I had over that time. I can uh, I could fill a big I could fill probably a whole series with uh, my communications dysfunctions. Last question, Mariette. I'll, I'll stop my comedy uh, routine here. One one question we crowdsource from a student, and I, and I think that it, it gets at something that's very important to you. Uh, The student, by the way, is my amazing graduate assistant, Lena Iskandarian. And she wants to know if you could provide an example of how communication can be used as a lever for social progress.
0: Thanks for the great question and and way to go, Lena. One of the things I love about this college that we've been talking about is we have the the tools we need. And I, I think our next step is to take those tools and apply them more externally. And I'm going to give you a couple of examples, but there are lots more. So, you know, one example we touched on is we are convening conversations such as around comm talks, which are on communication themes that are important to do. Those are sort of more internal where we can really have more social impact is what we do externally. And one cool example that I am enjoying is a class we just started teaching last semester, spring semester, called the Justice Media Co-Lab. We teach mm-hmm. it between journalism and with the Center for Computing and Data Sciences. And what happens is data science students and faculty work with journalism students and faculty to analyze big data sets and report on stories in the public interest. An example, a quick one that I can give you is, you know, who got the loans after the COVID crisis or mm-hmm. the racial inequities there. By shining a light, on societal problems using data like that with the unique tools here at BU, that is a lever for social change because you, you, you kind of yeah. activate concern in policy leaders' minds and business leaders' minds, and then they move to action. Another example which is coming up is the university through the Center for Anti-Racist Research is partnering with the Boston Globe to create a publication called the emancipator which is has been mm-hmm. announced and will launch next year and when it does calm hopes to work with with that news team in the same way we have done it with other local media to help address something called news deserts which is you know where business mm. conditions have made it so that there aren't enough reporters on the ground an example of uh, how we address news deserts is the State House program, which has run for 15 years. Our students cover the State House and make stories available to local media outlets, and we we do this in, with many ways. But it will be great to do it with the Emancipator, where we can maybe apply some of that Justice Media collab data analytics to you know stories with socially you know so, so meaningful so, that are socially meaningful and help us effect change. So I think those are two. There are many, many. Other examples I yes. think I could give you and many more I think we could do. And I, I would always really welcome ideas along these lines because let's face it, it's it's a lot more fun to go to work if you can help make the world a better place while you're at it.
1: Exactly. Well, Absolutely. great examples. And 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 I'm looking forward to the Emancipator. And that's with the Boston Globe as well, too, Mariette, right? That yes. they're yes. involved in that. Yeah, um, working perfect. directly with them terrific well this has been fantastic and so as a result i think we're going to have you back next week again <laughs> to be our first <laughs> guest to be on for three times no no this has been fantastic marietta I, I know how busy you are and and but this conversation has been really rich and i know our listeners will will love it so thanks for being on the crux mike thank you
2: yep Great to be here. Great to be here with you, Marriott.
0: What a pleasure to be here. Thank you both.
1: Thanks for listening to The Crux, and make sure to listen for our next episode. Follow us at The Crux on Facebook and on Twitter, and you can find our episodes on SoundCloud and on our website, thecruxpodcast.org.